consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Kane here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. We're in person. We're staring deeply into each other's eyes. She looked away. (laughs) We're in the same room. Um, We are doing a rehearsal retreat. We just finished three intense days of rehearsing the new commissions that those of you who joined the commission consortium are just about to devour. Um, We are so, so, so excited to record and release uh, so that you all can hear it. And we're so excited to hear you guys play everything that's on the consortium list. Um, The pieces are awesome. And I just know you're going to love them. Yeah. That's not all we've done, though. We Yes, we spent time rehearsing, but we've also had a lot of fun. Yeah, we have had too much fun. <laughs> Jackie almost killed us in a car wreck in front of the vice provost of her university. It was the chancellor. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, I met a bunch of your lovely colleagues. Yes, lots of social time. Uh, we've done some businesswoman planning. Mm-hmm. Do you have any special deals for businesswomen? <laughs> Do you have any businesswoman specials? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we should have watched Romeo and Michelle while you were here. That's a missed opportunity. Yeah, We did watch a lot of Drag Race. Yes, we got all our work done early. And so yesterday was dedicated to napping and jammies and drag race watching That's right. all day. And uh, Jackie made me a surprise. It was so sweet and thoughtful. She, because you all know I have some dietary restrictions. So she made some. Uh, She made me a dozen cupcakes. How long did it take you to make those cupcakes? It's actually not that bad. Um, the first time I made them, it was more of an ordeal. This time I knew what to expect. So you are on a carbohydrate. It's SCD, yeah, specific, specific carbohydrate, carbohydrate diet. diet. Yeah. And um, so this recipe. Further modified from the specific carbohydrate diet. 
Yes. And don't email me. I'll put the links to these in the <laughs> description. Um, but the cupcakes call for almond flour, honey, butter, egg, and vanilla extract. And I always forget that almond flour doesn't rise. Right. It's just ground up almond flour. Yeah. And um, so the first time I was like almost burned them because also almonds are brown. Yeah. How do you tell? And so it's very hard to tell when things are done. So this time I actually put the timer on uh, certain intervals and then I just kept checking oh. and checking and did the test with a toothpick till it came out clean. Um, and that didn't take any more time than a normal cupcake. What about the icing though? Well, I don't usually make, here's the thing why it's not really a pain in the butt if you make cupcakes from scratch, but I either go to the bakery and buy cupcakes or I do the Duncan Hines <laughs> cake mix. I'm not up here trying to be Ina Garden or anything like this is not Martha Stewart. I work for a living. Come on now. So I don't really do stuff from scratch. Uh, and yes, the icing is a meringue base. So you have to whip the egg whites to a stiff peak. I felt like I was Julia Child. <laughs> I have to boil honey. I was using a candy thermometer. <laughs> so it didn't actually take up that much time, but it just uses skills that I don't uh, emphasize all the time. And um, I'm calling you out because you were here for four and a half days and they were all gone yesterday morning. I ate 12 cupcakes <laughs> in three days. <laughs> I averaged three cupcakes a day. But I mean, if you have... When's the last time you had cupcakes? Probably four years ago, the last time you made them. <laughs> so if you only got cupcakes once every four years... Yeah, I I'm think three a day... My allotment. I think three a day is reasonable. Um, it should be noted that the reason I don't eat these very often is that I abused my privilege, my <laughs> wife making them, because I asked for them too many times. <laughs> the icing is really good. <laughs> I had a couple spoonfuls while I was baking your cupcakes, for sure. And we uh, faced another traveling debacle. Yes, it, it, within the last 24 hours. So we got everything done. We we're like, booyah. Felt really proud of ourselves. Truly. We had a friend day, mm -hmm. booyah. We got everything done with the rehearsals. Our big thing, business lady thing we were wanting to work on was you and I have had an idea for like this entrepreneurial workshop. But a lot of times um, the entrepreneurial workshops I've been to at least have emphasized non-traditional paths and we were interested in creating a workshop that um, even people who took conventional paths or combined some more um, traditional quote-unquote work with more inventive work or people who are completely charting new territory that um, it's kind of more of a philosophical Mm -hmm. workshop about where we place value mm -hmm. and um, celebrating uniqueness and kind of how that's manifest in our careers and ideas for how it can uh, manifest in the careers of you and your students. And so that's on our social media. Yeah. And it sounds very conceptual, but we have made it so that by the time you're done with the workshop, you will have a personal mission statement and take steps toward making action items to make it happen. Yeah, and his personal strategic plan yeah. as well. 
And well, and in the process of making the workshop, you and I felt the need to clarify some things about our company and our philosophy. So we also wrote a mission statement and finalized our mission statement. Mm-hmm. I just felt like buying a bunch of blazers by the end of it. Oh my God, I know. An updo, a blazer. A pantsuit. A pantsuit, yes. I mean, I felt like we had earned that by the end of it all. I agree. And then it was time to basically pack up and leave. And last night... My flight got canceled. (laughs) (laughs) So Jackie sat with me for, I have a screenshot to prove it, two hours and 20 minutes. It was midnight before it was over. And y'all, I've mentioned on the podcast that I'm an early bird. Literally, I'm usually in bed between 8.40 and 9 Mm p.m. I felt like... The old lady who lives in a shoe. Were you delirious? Up till midnight. I was having (laughs) visions. I was on hold for two hours and 20 minutes. Yes, it was. uh, Well, you all have had travel nightmares, I'm sure. That should be a dish topic sometime is like travel travel nightmares. nightmares. Oh, that'd be a depressing episode. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we... uh, Hopefully, I'm going to go home today. We'll see what happens. It's the third. No, you you had the canceled flight. Yep. The flight they tried to get you on that doesn't work. Uh-huh. They put you back on your old flight, which uh-huh. got canceled again. Yep. And now the one. So this is your fourth attempt at yes. a flight home in eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. So keep your fingers crossed. Four times the charm. <laughs> Maybe I'll just move in and be our roommate. Oh, I'd love it. <laughs> I would love that. I'd be like, Jackie, I'm hungry. More cupcakes. <laughs> Founded by Logan Esterling, Read Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reads and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reads while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reads with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.readdesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are so happy to welcome to the podcast Seth Krimsky, Principal Bassoon of the Seattle Symphony. Welcome, Seth. Welcome to you. Thanks for having me. I love to start by asking our guests how they began playing their instruments. So could you tell us how you came to play the bassoon? So my brother, my older brother, told me I should try beginning wins. I think I was in eighth grade. And I thought, I don't know, whatever. And and I thought, oh, trombone's got a slide, so I'm going to play trombone. Yeah. But I brought home a trombone, and it did have a slide, which bored me within about an hour and a half. 
And I thought, okay, I don't want to play this. What am I going to play? <laughs> and I have cousins who were about a decade older than I am. And they had a huge collection of Mad Magazines. And I had been reading Mad Magazine for years. And there was an old Mad Magazine that had a cartoon, like a movie parody about success stories from the 50s and from the 60s. And in the 50s, it was about this guy who wanted to be a boxer, but his father wanted him to play bassoon. And there was there was one panel in particular with this picture of a bassoon and a vocal sticking out and a billion keys on it. And I went, wow, that looks really complicated. I'm going to play that. <laughs> and I asked the teacher if there was a bassoon. He said, no, but the high school has one we can borrow because they don't have anybody playing it. And then he brought me that bassoon and had a couple reads and told me to think about swallowing golf balls to get the embouchure, I guess. <laughs> and I took it home and it was like, wow, this thing is cool. So that was that. Um, <laughs> then somehow I happened to live about a mile and a half from Norman Hertzberg. And when it got to the point where I wanted to really get lessons, uh, I had a cousin who was going to USC to get a doctorate in saxophone. And my father called him and said, who should I get to teach my son soon? And he said, oh, well, Norman Herzberg is the best teacher in the world. And that's true, but why would he want to teach some 15-year-old kid? Um, somehow my dad talked, me, talked him into giving me a lesson. I went in, I sat down. He started telling me about key signatures and how you form a scale. And then after he was done talking, he said, so how do you play a B-flat major scale? How many flats are in it? I went, okay. Uh, two. He went, yeah, and I go play one for me. So I kind of figured it out and played it for him. And he turned to my dad and said, fine, I'll take him. And that was that. I studied with him for the next nine years, I guess. Can we hear a little bit more about Mr. Hertzberg? Um, he's such a legend Totem? in the Totem? field. Yeah. And um, obviously we'll never get to interview him. And so when we have people on who study with these master teachers, you know, we'd love to hear a little bit more about their experience and what, what was he like? Nothing, nothing got by. In fact, I'm still calling him Mr. Hertzberg. I'm 61 years old. I'm still calling him Mr. Hertzberg. If he were still alive, I'd still be calling him Mr. Hertzberg. Every time I sit down to play still, He's sitting next to me. He's telling me everything that I need to go back and fix. He, his skill was to install that in his students, to make them so discerning and so occupied with making sure everything was the way they wanted it to be, that it's the kind of thing that would either push somebody to really, really playing their best or possibly convince them that's not what they want to be doing. And he had the, the ability to, to be able to pick only the cream of the crop, right? From at USC, people could audition and he could just, I'm only taking these, you know, the ones that are going to practice, the ones that are going to listen to what I say, the ones that, that you know, will give return on the investment. Um, why he took me as a private student, I'm still a little bit unclear. I mean, yeah, I figured out how to play B flat major scale. Um, and, and for a while, I, he'd say, you just call me when you're ready for your next lesson. And sometimes it would drift into like, I don't know, four weeks, five weeks, because I felt like it wasn't good enough to, to bring to him. And he just, with me anyway, he was, he was very calm. I don't remember him. He'd get excited sometimes talking about something somebody else did. 
but he never yelled at me. I, I have heard stories where he yelled at people, but I never encountered that somehow. Um, he's just had an endless thirst for anything about the bassoon. I mean, I think he was my age when I started studying with him. And he was at that point working on the profiler that he probably can't get anymore. I don't, I don't know. If, I think Ben is involved in getting some of those out now and then, or maybe Arlen also. Um, but, you know, that's, that's remarkable for somebody at that age to have that kind of desire and, and connection to the instrument to that degree that they want to create this profiler. Um, and he, he would go out of his way to figure out how to help somebody that was having trouble with something. I'm every time I would teach, I would think about how far from the mark I am, uh, with him as the standard of what I consider real teaching. And, and it, it, we had a very close relationship. He, I didn't get along with my father. He was kind of like a surrogate father to me. It, it, there's a lot tied up in, in that relationship. And I don't, I don't know how close I can come to describing what his teaching was like, mm -hmm. because there was that aspect of it as well, right. uh, that we lived so close to each other, even before I went to school. And that it was, it was a pretty much no question after I started studying with him that I, I wanted to play bassoon then at that point for a living and that I would go study with him at USC. And I didn't even audition anywhere else. I was uh, applying to other schools because I thought maybe I would be the um, pre-med major that my father wanted me to be, but I, I stuck with bassoon. And... So what happened after USC? How did you uh, journey into becoming the professional musician you are today? You know, this stuff goes down on paper. I look like such a jerk. Um, <laughs> I, I took a bunch of auditions, right? Everybody takes a bunch of auditions. And I believe some of your guests were on the circuit with me. Um, Whitney Crockett, uh -huh. he and I were auditioning for everything. We saw every, every audition we saw each other. Um, I, I, I kept coming in runner up, you know, and in those days it was like, well, we didn't choose you because you don't have any experience. Um, so... There were a couple of people from SC that had taken positions in South Africa, in Cape Town. And they said, oh, they love us there. You know, come out here and get some experience. So uh, a co-principal position was open in the Cape Town uh, Opera and Ballet Orchestra. And I sent them a tape. And that was it. It was just a tape. There was no anything after that. They just hired me. And it was weird, to say the least. Uh, I am slightly embarrassed about having, this is during apartheid, so I could be canceled right now for even saying that I went to South Africa at that time. Um, it was an interesting experience. There were a lot of people from London and Vienna in that orchestra who could not succeed in London or Vienna. They were, they were older. And then there were some kids from America who were trying to build their resume. And it was a very odd experience. It did give me the ability to make all my interpersonal uh, mistakes. I've always been kind of a uh, wise ass and <laughs> said things that maybe I shouldn't be saying. And that was where I learned how many of those things can't be said on the job, especially with people that don't know you. So it was v valuable for that. I, I left before my contract was up. I found somebody to finish my contract because it, I was having real trouble dealing with the level of the orchestra. And um, 
I came back to finish a master's at USC. I, I did not finish the master's because before I finished the master's, I got the job in Seattle. So there wasn't a lot of jumping around for me. My original job in Seattle was second bassoon. The principal bassoonist at that time was quite ill. He had had he was having in the midst of having a lot of surgery, and I ended up playing principal a lot. He had to retire um, because his health was just not anywhere where it needed to be to do to do that kind of job. And at that point, they could have local auditions um, before they had a national audition. They had a local audition. Uh, I won that audition. Obviously, I've been playing the job since. 89, I think, been principal. So that's quite some time, a lot of that with a particular music director whose name must not be spoken. And uh, yeah, just cranking them out for, it was, it was a tough job. Uh, it's a three man, three person section for, well, every year until right before the pandemic when we added a force to the section. And as soon as we hired somebody, our Contra player left. <laughs> So it's only, we just had a Contra audition. So it's only next season that I will actually preside over four people in a section. And let me tell you, night after night of playing every piece on every concert and no assistant is brutal. Mm -hmm. Good experience, I guess, but brutal. Um, our listeners really love to hear tips and tricks about auditions and someone who's held your position undoubtedly has experience on the other side of the screen. Many, 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 many. And um, so I wonder if you could share uh, your thoughts on what you've learned and what you observe in that process uh, with our listeners. Sure. So, and let me preface by saying this would really only apply to, to the orchestra where I play. Um, and, and I can't speak for other orchestras. I can speak for some of my colleagues because we discuss things. Um, so most of most of this is just my opinion, um, and and I don't I, I don't want to give anybody the impression that you can apply it to any audition anywhere. So the things that are important to me, and I'll just start with that. When I listen to an audition, obviously, you know the pitch and, and rhythm, and those those are key. Pitch and rhythm are really really key. You don't want to play that B flat arpeggio at the beginning of the Mozart attitude. It, it, that's all it takes really for people to stop listening. If, if that's not in tune, there's going to be a problem. To me, uh, the audition is a matter of people demonstrating what they're able to do. So sometimes people really want to overdo it. Like I've got to play everything really fast or I've got to play everything like it's a solo or I have to play everything as softly as possible. You really only need to demonstrate on the appropriate excerpts that yes, I can play very softly. Yes, I can. My fingers are fine. My tongue is fine. What what I what I want to hear is somebody who's putting together. Obviously, they've worked hard enough that they're not making a lot of mistakes. I hear a couple of mistakes. I don't care. Most of the people I know don't care. Um, mistakes happen. What we want to hear is that you know what happens in the music that everything that you play has phrasing in it. There's no such thing as a bunch of notes with no direction. Even if it's a baseline, even if it's the most banal, mundane thing that you've ever seen, 
there's direction in it. it. It's working with something else. So we really want to hear that you know what else is going on and how what you're doing fits. We want to hear a little personality. Um, one thing that's happened a lot at auditions is somebody comes in and nails everything. I mean, everything. They don't make a mistake. Everything sounds great. They didn't play a phrase once. They're so focused on making sure everything's perfect that it, it, it's boring. Uh -huh. um, where I work, we don't want to hear that. I, there might be places, there are people that we've had in finals that did not get the job for that reason that have gotten jobs elsewhere. So once again, what I'm talking about, it applies, I guess, mostly to where I work. But uh, once again, it goes without saying that you have to have worked very hard and practiced a lot and have command of the instrument. But we, we want to hear your musical identity. We want to hear that that you're gracious enough to share that with us and and that that there's some degree of subtlety involved because you know the level of general playing is quite high now we don't tend to hear people that shouldn't be at the audition which was the case when i was auditioning um it's not anymore so that musical identity is really really important um we don't need to we don't need to hear that you listened to the david mcgill lesson on this solo and that you're playing it exactly the way he told you. Uh -huh. um, we don't need to hear that you did something in this solo because you thought something needed to be done. You do something because organically it has something to do with what that music is saying, that you have an inner narrative. You have a story of what you're telling. You are the actor or actress in this play and delivering your line so that it highlights the meaning of the scene. This is what I this is what I personally want to hear, and, and many of my colleagues, when we discuss, are looking for the same sort of thing. And, and it makes me think about something David Bridenthal said to me when I went to um, Santa Barbara many years ago. That you know the best actors, they're they don't go from one extreme to the other in a second. I, I guess Nicolas Cage wasn't really on the scene yet at that point. Um, <laughs> They, they tend to build to something, you know, or they, or something's always delivered to provide meaning to the material. So I urge everybody to study the score, listen to the music and bring your narrative, provide the meaning to the material. You know, how do you see it? What does it mean to you? And how do you want other people to know that that means that to you? So I kind of have a two-part question. You have occupied this principal position for... Ever. <laughs> <laughs> there's, so there's two things that I'm curious about. Um, the first thing is how do you keep your body and your mind in the physical condition that it needs to be in order to do that job well. And for, and also um, what makes a great principal bassoonist and has that idea evolved over your career? And the joke immediately is go find a great principal bassoonist and ask them. Um, <laughs> so you know, I, I do what I can do to keep, things in shape. I've been going to the gym every morning for oh. many, many years. And I, and I don't think I did that specifically to 
be in shape for the job. It's just like a personal thing on my part. For the mind thing, it, it is interesting that um, focus starts to be a little bit of an issue. And I've also developed a little bit of, um, it's not performance anxiety, but I started getting like rapid heartbeat uh, pretty much randomly at any time, not necessarily during concerts. And I, I, I do sometimes if I feel like that's a possibility, I, I do take a beta blocker if it's a concert, you know, that requires, because there was one concert where we were doing Sibelius second, which is not a big bassoon piece, but I, my heart just kind of went out of control for a while and I had to stop playing. And this was now 12, 13 years ago, I think. Um, and you know, that's no way that you can't go to a concert and have that happen. So, um, anybody with questions about beta blockers, I would say they're, they make no impact in any other way. Like, I, I would have no idea that I took one. In fact, I don't even know that they're effective necessarily, but I've not had any racing heart issues at any point where I've taken them. So so if you're concerned about anything like that, as far as in my experience, there are no side issues involved. There's no feeling like you're on anything. Uh, and then to address the other question about just to be ineffective, I'm, I'm not going to go with the great part because I... <laughs> I feel a little uncomfortable calling myself great. Um, to be effective, I feel like, A, really know the music. Be become as much of a conductor as the conductor is. And then just make sure that you can lead your section. Um, I, I move around a lot, probably too much sometimes, but I think that's really necessary, especially in the back row. Um, you, you kind of work out a dynamic with the principal clarinetist, you know, and, and we have a great principal clarinetist, Ben Lulich, and he and I really kind of just play with each other without, without work. I, I don't know how that, you know, when you get those people, I don't know how that happens, but it's fantastic. And, and, and the, my bassoon section is fantastic. I've been playing with Paul Raffinelli for, I don't know, 30 years. Um, I don't really say much. I don't feel like I need to. I don't think I should have to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he listens to what I'm doing. Um, if I want to do something weird, which I sometimes do, I, I'll say, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Uh, in fact, we were just doing, I don't know what we were doing. I think it was Mahler. And I said, how about, how about if we get to this part this time and, uh, we play it like we're really drunk with a lot of vibrato and, and like we're singing Old Lang Syne at a New Year's Eve party. <laughs> and he said, yeah, sure, let's try it. Um, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I'll say to him. I don't, I'm not one of those, you're behind there, you're out of tune. I, I never, I, I think that's, I wouldn't want to hear that if I was playing second. I mean, you got to trust your people to know when they're playing well and when they're not. And they do. Um, so it's mostly about knowing the music and, and knowing where you want your section to fit in everything and getting them there without having to tell them how to do everything. Just demonstrate and, I mean, while you're playing, not stop and demonstrate. Just during the course of everything, just put it down the way you want it to be and they're going to follow because even if you're not great, you know, you are their leader and they're going to follow because that's what they're supposed to do. 
I'd like to ask about um, some of your routines. So if you have, say, a big solo, I'm sure at this point in your career, you've played them all. No, unfortunately not. But well, yeah. okay, I guess it's a two-parter. So what, what big solos have you not played that you'd want to? Um, and then for those days that you have, you know, a Rite of Spring or a Ravel Piano Concerto in G, what does your routine look like as you're prepping one of those big exposed solos? It's really no different than anything else. Yeah. Practice it over and over. Make decisions about where 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 it's going. You know where the high point is. Make sure that all the intervals are good. Do long tones on pretty much every note that's in the solo. Um, break it down into little pieces if it needs to be smoothed out. If there are bumps anywhere, you know, just polish it and polish it. At this point. Um, it's not that I do it on the day of the solo. What's it? You know, it's for weeks ahead. So the one piece that I seldom played is Elgar Falstaff, mm. which has a great bassoon part, and I've never successfully gotten a conductor to program it. <laughs> and I'm I'm very sad about that. I want to play that piece anyway. Yeah, there, there's no there's no secret um, formula for solo. It's 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 mostly about know how you want it to sound and work on it until it sounds that way. Mm -hmm. If if you know that you're going to have to work this many extra hours to get it there, then start that much earlier. And um, my next question would be about your reed making routine as a professional in an orchestra as big as yours is. Um, what does your reed life look like on a regular basis? Oh, and our listeners love to hear the nerdy stuff like uh, shape and uh, the machines you use, your setup, all that type of stuff too. I, I'm on the I'm on the Hertzberg profiler and the Hertzberg shaper, um, the original batch. So this is not the. There's a newer batch that he that he made um, that had some modifications. I'm on the original. I'm on number twenty five out of number twenty six. So he originally made 26 and I got number 25. At this point, and I think this is not quite a year, I got one of those hardness testers. Um, do, are, do you, are you aware of them? Yeah, I'm aware of them. They're not part of my routine, but. I, I thought they were kind of silly for a while until I, until I got one. So I, I tend to split uh, five tubes every week and then I'll gouge them and put them on the tester. And I have, a, I have an area where I'll keep them and I tend to keep somewhere between eight and 12 out of the 20. So if I don't, then I'll have to gouge and split some more. I want to make sure that I'm making in the vicinity of 10 a week. Uh, out of those 10, because I'm using that tester and I've, I've eliminated the really bad ones already, I'm at this point getting maybe four or five a week that I will take into work and a couple of those are going to end up playable at a concert. And this is every week. So there are no weeks off. If there's a really good week where I get surplus, great. It doesn't mean that I take the next week off. Um, in fact, so the last, these are, these are the last, uh, I don't think it's three weeks. I think it's two weeks. Had, had a good, good amount of cane come through. So those will get narrowed down some more. There's always going to be trimming that needs to be done on site. So they don't get completely finished at home. Seattle is infamous for weather changes. 
especially barometric pressure changes. We have a period during the winter where it gets sunny and really cold. And I don't know if you got that where you are, but that sucks. I mean, <laughs> nothing, nothing is worse for reeds than sunny and cold. That I'm high in pressure Mississippi, area. so we, we get <laughs> sunny and wet and hot. <laughs> yeah, well, if it's consistent, that might be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Although, do, you, do, they, do you have to throw them out pretty rapidly? The reeds, uh-huh. do they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't try to turn mediocre reeds into good reeds. As soon as I discovered that they're mediocre, they go away. Mm-hmm. And, and I try to not saddle myself with a, of course, sometimes you can't help it. You get a bad read. You have to play Sherazade. Um, but most of the time I feel like, um, especially now with that, being able to dismiss so many and being able to have a higher percentage of reeds turn out. Mm-hmm. I feel a little less under stress about the whole reed situation, but it's it's a matter of just consistently making them. Um, if you don't, if your reeds aren't good, make more reeds. Or as Mister Hertzberg would say, play long tones. <laughs> what do you mean? There's something wrong with your reeds? Play play more long tones. <laughs> I love so, that. <laughs> I mean, that would be the thing you'd call Mister Hertzberg. My reeds are so bad. Go sit down and play long tones. That's it. That would be his answer. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I have no no tips or tricks about reeds. <laughs> Honestly, you know, most of them are going to be bad. You learn how to put them together properly and hope for a good piece of cake. And that's mm-hmm. It's a completely different mindset, I think, um, from a lot of, uh, we have a lot of student listeners. And I think a lot of students are uncomfortable throwing away those questionable pieces because they think about the uh dollar amount that they're putting in the trash uh-huh. but w- from what you're saying you're you're paying for it either way you're paying for it in time and energy or you're paying for it with money or both yeah and i would say if you're trying to play on a reed that's made from a piece of cane that just doesn't really vibrate the psychic damage will result in much higher therapy bills than the amount of cane you're throwing away. <laughs> um, mental therapy and physical therapy. I feel like my body hurts when I try to play on a bad read. Yeah, it, it's just it's it's horrible. <laughs> I, I mean, they're never great. I don't I don't remember the last time I had a great read, but you know, there's playable and there's not playable. Right. What are the qualities in a read that you look for? What makes it a great read or a playable read? Excuse me. It it vibrates. Mm-hmm. You know, you try to play it soft, it vibrates. You try to play it loud, it continues to vibrate without, you know, closing down. Just response, really. That, that was another one from Mr. Hertzberg. Is everybody would say, oh, I want the read to sound good. And, and it's like, and he would say, if it plays in tune and you can play dynamics on it, it will sound good. Um, and obviously, you know, if it sounds like a buzzsaw, there are people that like that and people that don't. Um, but honestly, the ones that, that sound like that usually are really stiff cane that I don't find versatile enough. Like I just, I can play them loud and that's what I can do with them. I'm not in a band, I'm in an orchestra. So I need something a little more flexible. Mm-hmm. Can we hear about the bassoon that you play on and how it came into your life? I play on a bell. I got it a couple of years ago. I had played on heckles before that. 
everybody has to play on a hackle. I mean, this is what I heard from the time I started playing bassoon. I was so excited when I got my first hackle. And <laughs> it was it was um, during the Gebhardt years at the Hackle Factory. It's going back going back to the eighties, early eighties, and I had ordered it at four forty, and it came in to play sharp. And I wrote them a letter um, saying this. Just play at 440. This is really sharp. And Gebhardt wrote me a letter back saying, "There's something wrong with you. We made that the way you wanted it. That you know that Kurt done." When I ordered my next heckle, which was 20, 20 or so years later, and ordered it at 440, I got a letter saying, "Are you sure you wanted it 440? The last one you got from us was 442." <laughs> and I played that heckle for a few years, and and I, I as as I got older, I found it more and more difficult to manage. And you know, everybody raves about bells, and I, I know Michael O'Donovan really well in Los Angeles, and he's been playing bells for had been, he stopped playing, but he had been playing it, bells exclusively for many years. So I ordered one, and I just find it fantastic. Um, it's not perfect; it's not like a miracle. There are some notes, you know, it's a bassoon, <laughs> but it's much more cooperative. And I find the difference being like, you know, if you're, let's go Gilligan's Island, right? Heckle is, is uh, Ginger and Belle is Marianne. <laughs> and, and, you know, Marianne, she's not ugly. There's nothing wrong with Marianne. She's just nice. You know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, let's, you know, and that sounds like fun. Well, heck, the, the bell is like, yeah, it sounds like fun. What can I do? What can I do for you so that you can deliver your musical opinion? Uh-huh. And the heckle was like, I'm a heckle. You're going to have to work for me, you know? So, you you know, you can go ahead and try for that musical vision, but I'm not helping you. Uh-huh. I'm going to, I'm here to sound like a heckle. And you just appreciate the fact that I'm a heckle and that I sound like a heckle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's two different things. Uh, I don't think the bell sounds bad by any stretch of the imagination. I think it sounds fantastic. It doesn't sound like a heckle, but then there was a particular upper frequency that the heckles pushed a little bit too much, in my opinion, for the kind of sound that I want. So the bell just became this kind of perfect instrument for me. I, I can't say it would be for everyone, but if somebody tells me they want to get a new bassoon, on, I, I will say, have you thought about a bell? You don't have to wait 14 years for it. And it, you know, it doesn't make you jump through flaming hoops every time you want to play right. five notes in a row. Was that controversial at all, the choice to switch from a heckle in such a high-profile orchestral position? Yeah. Nobody, nobody cares. Okay. They, they don't, I mean, for the most part, they don't, they don't even know. If, if I got one that was dyed blue, they'd go, oh, you got a new bassoon. Otherwise, it's like, <laughs> you know, do you, think, do you think anybody in the orchestra, aside from the bassoon section, cares what the bassoonist is playing on? Right. They don't, they don't even know we're playing most of the time. <laughs> you know, some, I really like that solo you play tonight. Oh, you mean that one note that I held in between <laughs> movements of the Mendelssohn syndrome? I was going to ask if there are maybe perhaps any funny things that have happened on stage that you'd be willing to share with us or. So <laughs> I, I don't know if it wasn't funny to me, but if, but telling the story, I'm sure it's funny. We were playing Firebird for perhaps the seven thousandth time in my career, and and there was I, I decided after the dance in Fresnel ended, I decided this would be a good time to clear out my vocal. So I popped my vocal off to blow it out and drop it, 
And it's really quiet at this point, right? You know, there's almost no sound at all. Hits the floor. And it, it, it's, it was like, like a gong, like a perfectly <laughs> tuned gong. It was so loud. And everybody, you know, all heads swivel. And then I had to play the solo. Yeah. Did you just point? Like, yeah, point sorry, my bad. I'll just go home now. <laughs> Somebody else play it. Um, no, I had to play it like seconds after that. Frantically trying to put the thing back in the instrument. Um, yeah. See, you're laughing. <laughs> I, I wasn't laughing when it happened. I really love Schadenfreude. That's my personal. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. We all do. So some, if your music director came up to you and said, Seth, I want you to plan the next concert. What would be on it? Elgar Falstaff. <laughs> Are you paying attention? Seriously, I want to play that piece. Um, yeah, that would be on it. What else would be on it? What's the program look like? I don't know. The My you know associate's going to play the first half. <laughs> I have an associate now. I'm not playing the first half. If the Elgar's on the concert, I'm not playing the first half. <laughs> well, I'll tell you another piece that I've never played that I just think is terrific and short and should open at least one concert every year is the Pacific 231 by Onagar. Oh. I don't know if you know that one. It's a mm-hmm. So it, it basically comes off as a train starting off slowly and speeding up. It's got terrific bassoon parts in it. Um, he actually, I think, said it was called that after a, an engine, not a train. But it sounds like a train name, and the piece actually does sound like a train. Check it out after we get off of this Zoom, because it's dynamite. Okay. Um, and I don't know, there are so many good, excellent concertos of various types. We love to close with this question. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Uh, practice. You know, a lot of people have a lot of talent. It's, it's all about how much work you're willing to, how much work you're willing to do. How many times when you're in college getting, you know, practicing that somebody comes by the room and goes, want to go see a movie? No. So-and-so wants to get on a date with you. You want to go? No, I got to practice. Are you willing to just say no to everything? and continue practicing that that's the advice I get. I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm not saying doing this for a living is particularly a good idea or healthy, but if you got to do it, you got to do it. Uh, Put everything you can into it. You know, when I was a kid, it was like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And my thing was always, yeah, put all your eggs in one basket. If you drop the basket, go get another basket and fill it with more eggs, all of those eggs. And you don't, you don't know that you haven't succeeded until you've, dropped a couple of baskets and filled them back up. Well, Seth Krimsky, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And we're so grateful for you to spend, spend an hour with us. Thank you. You're too kind. We hope you enjoyed that episode. We hope that you're eating tons of cupcakes and catching all of your flights and being savvy business people and rehearsing efficiently. We hope we give all of our good juju to you through the vibes of the pod. 
Uh, rate, subscribe, follow, you know the drill, Galit, who's on the next episode. We are so excited to share a beautiful interview with Andrew W. Parker, assistant professor of oboe at Oklahoma State University. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go catch your flight. Go fly home. Go fly home and make sure that your retools are in your suitcase. Checked bag. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes.